listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files podcast, your fortnightly foray into guitar geekery. My name is Eric Daw. Uh, just consider me your personal guitar scientist with over 25 years of experience building and repairing guitars. Sitting beside me is my lovely co-host, Melissa. Greetings. I will read the listener-submitted questions, and Eric will try to answer them the best he can, drawing on his experience as a professional luthier. It's true, and we're feeling pretty good around here. Oh, we're yeah. Putting, we're putting a new floor in Melissa's shop, so that's been it's fun. It's so exciting, because I've got OSB floors, and so if I spill anything, it just soaks right in. Yeah. So uh, we are putting down a vinyl... Palin stick floor. It's not that exciting. It's just exciting in that I will be able to keep it clean. Mm -hmm. And I say we, I just, I haven't really helped at all. Yeah. uh, I am putting in a floor. I plan on helping. Eric has looked at it. I plan on helping. Yeah. Thanks. So what's going on with you? What's on your bench? Um, Well, right now I have a, I think it's a 52 or 53. I can't remember. It's a triple 28 Martin. I'm doing a neck reset on and, uh, some crack repairs. Somebody, the heel is cracked. Somebody cracked the heel and put a big split down the side, and it's got three different holes drilled in it where somebody put strap buttons. Jeez. Yeah, it needs a lot. How many strap buttons do you need? Well, on that guitar, none. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I've been working on that. I've been working on a few custom guitars that will be up for sale soon. A lot of vintage guitar restorations. I don't know what things come in waves. I don't know why, but this has been acoustic guitar restoration spring. Just everybody. Wow. I've got a vintage parlor guitar, like a hundred-year-old Lion and Healy parlor guitar. I have to do the works on. You know the works. The works. Neck reset, new bridge, new frets, uh, neck press, crack repair, uh, crack repair, mm-hmm. bridge. The works. New bridge. Uh, what else? A whole bunch of acoustics. Um, I've got a. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't even want to say a whole bunch of guitars. <laughs> but <clears throat> things are plugging along. I, you know, I read something interesting on the internet today. I saw someone posted uh, a link to a reverb article, and mm-hmm. this reverb article was uh, seven guitar-related podcasts you should be listening to. Ooh. Yeah. Were we on there? Yeah, of course not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was basically, 
here's seven podcasts that don't badmouth us, <laughs> I think, was how you could read that headline. I'm pretty sure Reverb does not know that we exist, though. Yeah, well, you say that, but I don't know. I mean, it's a, it, you never know. You never know. I know that um, there's a lot of uh, people that listen to the show that are in the industry, and uh, there's a lot of companies that probably would advertise, except they think that we're a little bit uh, mm. too... Uh, too spicy. We're a little bit too uh, free with our opinions. We are a little bit too <laughs> spicy. <laughs> I know that for a fact. So oh, for that's okay. a fact. Yeah, absolutely. what kind of insider info you got I, there? Uh, I'll tell you later. Not on the show, but <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, that's a fact. Cool. This episode of the Extra Spicy Fret Foils podcast is brought to you by Apex Coffee Roasters, based in Waco, Texas. Apex Coffee Roasters searches the globe for the best. I'm. Did I write that wrong? Apex Coffee. Apex Coffee Roasters searches or search. Apex mm. Coffee Roasters. Sir, I would say search. searches. Searches. Well, they do. They search the globe for the best coffee beans available, roasting them in-house to unlock the natural aromas and flavors that make each cup an individual experience. You can order Apex Coffee online. Fret Files listeners can use my promo code PINUP, that's P-I-N-U-P, at checkout to receive 10% off from apexcoffeeroasters.com. It really is the best coffee. It's what we drink and, uh, you know, have you ever looked up the, I was thinking about this, have you ever looked up the definition to the word apex? No. Well, check this out. <clears throat> apex, the definition, the top or highest part of something. Th that was really uh, <laughs> anticlimactic. Perfect. That was really <laughs> anticlimactic. <clears throat> uh, Unlike apex. Yeah. Anyway, it's the best. That's my point. My point is <laughs> it's, that it's the best coffee. Moving right along. <laughs> Shall we take some uh, some listener submitted questions? Yeah, we don't have any calls? Oh, uh, no, no, we don't. Okay, no calls. Yeah, no calls. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Hello, Eric and Mel. Hope all is well. I have a guitar that is set up for E standard tuning and would like to set it up for D standard. What steps would I need to take? Thanks. That's from Joe from Virginia. Hello, Joe. What do you know? Uh, so, I don't know. So, he has a guitar set up for E standard. Meaning, okay, so not an open chord, just E standard, and you want to set it up for D standard, so a, f a full step low. Okay. What steps would he need to take? Uh, I don't know. It's a roundabout way to ask a question. For me, I don't care how the guitar used to be tuned. I'm just going to set it up for the, you know, if you know how to set up a guitar, you just set it up. You just set it up for the tuning you're going to use and the strings you're going to use. So it depends on your tuning and your string gauge. But if you're, if, let's say, let's say you use tens in E standard. My recommendation would be to go up a gauge. So you're going to want to use 11s for D standard because they'll feel like 10s did with that um, with that other tuning. So uh, I would use slightly heavier strings and uh, just set it up, you know? I mean, probably uh, <clears throat> you, you might need to adjust the truss rod. You might need to adjust the intonation, but if you... 
um, know what you're doing on a guitar setup. It really doesn't matter what tuning you're coming from, right? Well, what this question says to me is that he's holding his guitar in his hands right now, and it's tuned to E standard. Can he just tune it down? Oh, okay. That's that's a good clarification. You can, but what happens is the strings are now looser, so the neck relaxes, mm-hmm. and so um, you, you might need to do a truss rod adjustment. Also, the strings are at a different tension and a different pitch, so you might need to adjust the intonation as well. So same strings, different tuning, lower tuning. You'll need to uh, loosen the truss rod probably a little bit, and you'll need to adjust, readjust your intonation and possibly even your action. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. <clears throat> Eric, I am an all-acoustic player, but I have always wanted to ask an experienced telly or strat player if there's an audible tonal difference between a rosewood or a maple fingerboard, or if it is just personal preference based on appearance. What do you think? Are there any other pulses and pluses and minuses choosing between the two woods for a custom build? Cheers. That's from Doug. Thanks, Doug. Uh, any pluses and minuses? Well, they wear differently, and they look different as they... As they wear, you know, that's the, did you know that's the reason why Leo Fender switched from maple to rosewood fingerboards? Because they wear differently? He saw somebody playing a Fender on TV and the fretboard was all worn. Hmm. And he said, that looks terrible. Wow. And so they switched to rosewood. That's maybe apocryphal. I don't know, but that's, that's the story. Interesting. As far as tone goes, uh, I mean, you always hear people say that, you know, the finished maple fingerboards are brighter, but I I always go back to this. I mean, I never listen to a record and think, "Hmm, it sounds like a maple fingerboard or it sounds like a rosewood fingerboard. A lot of its feel, finished maple fingerboards uh, are glossy and wear a rosewood fingerboard is unfinished and just, you know, treated with oil occasionally. So right. they, they feel different. They wear differently. They Maybe they do sound different. I mean, certainly um, people always say maple fingerboards are brighter. Uh, he wants to know pluses and minus. <laughs> Choosing between the two woods for a custom build. Go with what you like. That's That's what I say. Go with what you like. Thanks, Doug. Eric and Melissa, thank you for answering my many questions on your podcast. It has really helped me to understand what goes into guitar building and repair. I have a late 60s, early 70s Gibson with a three-piece mahogany laminated neck. It has fallen over multiple times and the headstock is still undamaged. Are the laminated necks stronger or have I just been lucky? It's the only Gibson I've kept since becoming a Fender Tele and Strat fanatic. Thanks again. That's from Ron. Hmm. Uh, the laminated necks. I've, I don't know if they're stronger. I mean, you know, just my gut feeling is that they're probably stronger, but I've fixed plenty of, of, uh, broken headstocks on those laminated necks. So I'm just trying to think not as many, but there aren't as many of those guitars. So, you know, does it balance out? I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's anything that they that they do anymore. It's something that they did for a while there in the in the seventies. 
uh, the, the, the laminated mahogany. They do um, laminated maple necks. Those are cool. And those almost never break, the Gibsons with the maple necks. But the three-piece laminated mahogany neck, most players look at that as a, a downside, you know. I, and I, it, it really just is because that it coincides with an overall uh, decline in, in Gibson quality for that time period that they used it. So uh, it, it just coincided with a, a downturn in quality. So people tend to look down on those three-piece laminated mahogany necks, but, um, you know, they're probably a little stronger because it's laminated three different pieces of wood. But, again, I've, I've seen broken headstocks on those, so, so don't let it fall anymore. <laughs> I think you've been lucky eight times, and uh, the ninth is going to kill you. I don't know. Hey, Eric, I just listened to the last podcast with the Amp Kit Build Revisit, and I wanted to make a suggestion. First of all, cabinet construction can make a big difference in the sound an amp produces, and the speaker can make a huge one. Next time you get together with your buddy and his amp, try putting them back to back and swap the speaker cables i.e. play through each other's cab and speaker. In my experience, pine usually sounds much better than plywood, and I've never been crazy about newer Jensen's. I hope this will make you feel better about your amp. That's from Cartwright. Thanks, Cartwright. You know, I we did that. I, I don't think we, re, we recorded that for the podcast, but uh, yeah, Nat and I did that. <clears throat> they have this uh, Trinity Triton kit has a uh, jack for the speaker so you can really easily just swap jacks you know output speaker and hear the amp through uh, a different cabinet and when we did that it was astonishing the amps sounded almost identical so Nat's amp through his cabinet and speaker sounds better than my amp through my cabinet and speaker they mine his sounds better. Mine sounds worse to me. You swap uh, speakers, speaker cables. Mm -hmm. So his amp chassis is playing through my cabinet, and my chassis is playing through his cabinet, and then they sounded almost identical. Interesting. Yeah, it is. It's weird. So uh, I don't know what that tells you, if anything, but. Um, the other thing about it is I, you know, I listened back to that episode with Nat and I had to laugh because, uh, our recording of the two amps sounded way closer to each other than, than they did in the room. In the room, it was night and day difference. Nat's, really? Nat's amp sounded way better than mine. And then on the recording, because I use, I, you know, I compress the audio and it was just a, it's just a cheap mic, like four feet away from the amp. So you're getting a lot of room sound and it, it wasn't the most professional way to record the amps, but uh, on the recording, they, they sounded way closer. So if you listened to that and you thought, what's the big deal? These amps sound really similar. They did on the recording. In the room, it was night and day. I mean, really night and day. Interesting. Yeah. So that tells you a lot. Yeah. You know, how you record an amp make, can make a huge difference just in, uh, in, in 
you know, when you're recording. So, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for writing in there, Cartwright. Appreciate it. Eric, some folks say they don't like the sound of a reverse round, reverse polarity pickup, but what is an alternative? <laughs> uh, what is your stance on RWRP pickups? Thanks so much, Roger, a.k.a. Dirt. Thanks, Dirt. That's my man, Dirt. Uh, some people say they don't like the sound of reverse wound, reverse polarity pickups. That just makes me laugh, honestly, because... Uh, there's absolutely zero difference in the tone. <clears throat> so if you have, if you have a strat and the middle pickup is reverse wound, reverse polarity, and you just have the switch in the middle position, so you're hearing just that pickup, it will sound identical to a pickup that had opposite polarity and opposite uh, winding direction. Because for all intents and purposes, it is. It's exactly the same. It's just 180 degrees out of phase. So so when one is going up, the other's going down. Right. But it's exactly the same. So um, people say things, but, you know, they don't have any idea what they're talking about. The only reason, if you don't understand this, this is something you need to grasp. The only reason to have a reverse wound, reverse polarity pickup is so that when you use it in tandem with other pickups, it cancels hum. That's the only reason. There is no other reason. It doesn't sound different. It doesn't act differently. It doesn't do anything different other than cancel hum when you use it with an, a standard wind, standard polarity pickup, which is a silly thing to say because there's no such thing as a standard also, you know, um, to call a pickup reverse wind, reverse polarity insinuates that there's a standard wind, standard polarity, and there's not. It's just that it's, if on it, any given guitar, it's just the opposite of what the other pickups are. That's correct. Okay. So uh, you'll end up with like um, like a lot of the custom shop reissue stuff. They've chosen for whatever reason, they've chosen to go with vintage spec which is three pickups that are exactly the same polarity and exactly the same winding so they don't hum cancel but the tone is exactly the same the only difference is in the two and four positions it has just as much hum as the rest of the positions where if if you had a reverse wind reverse polarity pickup it would cancel hum but the tone is unaffected absolutely 100, 1,000% unaffected. And people who think that they can hear a difference are mistaken. There you go, Dirt. Hi, Eric and Mel. I have a question about guitar neck shapes and fretboard radius. Long story short, my index finger on my left hand was broken as a kid and it never healed correctly. I can only bend my index finger halfway. Think of a lowercase r for reference of the shape. Okay. What would be the best shape neck and fretboard radius for my situation? Thanks, Joe from Virginia. P.S. Looking for something that would make playing chords and bar chords easier to, and I'm a right-handed player. That's from Joseph. Joseph. How's it going, Joseph? So he's a right-handed player. His left hand, the index finger is broken and can't, he can't, he can't straighten bend it. it? More, oh, he, can't, he can't bend it more than an R shape. Oh, he, he can 
I can only bend my index finger halfway. So playing a bar chord, you, so you can straighten your finger, right? Okay. What would be the best fretboard radius and neck shape? Honestly, <clears throat> I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Just none. I really don't. And, and the reason why is because um, it's going to depend on what's comfortable to you. And that's going to be entirely up to you, not up to anyone but you. You're going to have to try out different fretboard radiuses and different neck shapes and decide what's the most comfortable to you. It's like me trying to tell you what kind of shoe is going to be most comfortable to you. You're going to have to try them on, man. I, I don't know. I don't know. And and whether you whether you had this problem with your index finger or not, the answer's the same, you know, because everybody's hands are different, and everybody's hands are different sizes and shaped different, and everybody has different, um, uh, you know, limitations and different uh, expectations and different playing styles, and that'll affect you know, what kind of neck shape and what kind of fingerboard radius and what kind of frets you want. So it really is um, entirely personal preference and you're just going to have to try some things out. Sorry, I don't have a recommendation, but that's a, like, that is a recommendation. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, I guess your recommendation is to go down to your local guitar store and ask for a variety of radiuses and... Neck types. You know, a store that knows what uh, what they're doing and knows what they're talking about sh- should be able to accommodate that. But uh, don't don't put them through the ringer, right? <laughs> and here's something: if you're going to do that to a store, why don't you buy like a why don't you buy a you know a couple packs of strings or an instrument cable while you're there? If you're not going to buy a guitar, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or call first and say, "Hey, this is what I'd like to do. Can you guys accommodate me?" Yeah. Or, you know. If you're going to go into the strip mall guitar store, they're not going to have any idea what to do with you because they're going to have a few Schecters and Ibanezes on the wall. And what you probably want is a like a vintage guitar store or a used guitar store where they actually know, like if you walked in and said, hey, you got any guitars with a soft V? If they just look at you blankly, then you're in the wrong place. But if they say, oh, yeah, we got a couple, then then you know. Hmm. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Let's take a little break. We'll be right back with more. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com you can go to playersgearmusic you can order a neck straightening iron some people call it a neck press or a neck heater it is an invaluable tool in my shop I use it all the time I'd be lost without one of these I, I love having a neck straightening iron and Rick is making a really really stout industrial it, I, I think it I think it's the best one that I've used, and I've, I've used a lot. I've made my own. I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the 70s and 80s, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one from playersgearmusic.com. They're $7.49. I know that seems like a lot. It's, it's a tool. I tell you what, it's going to pay for itself a hundred times over. 
if you go to his website and make an offer for six ninety nine and mention the Fret Files podcast. Six ninety nine, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron, a neck press, a neck heater, whatever you want to call it. Playersgearmusic.com has them, and you need one. I'm telling you, it's an invaluable tool, indispensable. I'd be lost without mine. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out, and don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. Hey, guitar nerds. Visit MalcoLeather.com to check out a variety of made-to-order leather guitar straps, or you can email MalcoLeather at gmail.com for custom work. Every Malco guitar strap is designed and built by hand by me. Check out my Instagram at MalcoLeather to see examples of my past work, and as an added bonus, I offer free shipping in the U.S. for orders over $35. Visit MalcoLeather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O Leather.com. As you know from listening to the show, I repair and restore guitars. If you go over to EricDaw.com and see information about guitar repair and guitar restoration, you can contact me there. If you've got some guitar restoration or pickup rewinding, anything that you need done, If you want to see the custom guitars that I build, you can go over to pinupcustomguitars.com. There's a whole lot of guitars on there that have been sold, but I also post new arrivals there all the time. They go quick, so check often. The best way to get into the loop is to submit your email address on the the homepage of that website, and that'll add you to my email list, and you'll get a heads up when there's new guitars available. That's pinupcustomguitars.com and ericdaw.com. Hi guys, I recently put a Telecaster kit from Stumac together and I've been playing it tons. I love Stumac, but I have to say the quality on the kit was not top notch. Remember I was telling you how certain companies aren't going to ever advertise on the show? Yeah, right. well, well, case in point. Uh, not that I paid a top notch price though, so everything is pretty much as I expected. I figured all the ingredients would be there for me to tweak and refine to my liking. The problem is that I'm having fret buzz, lots of it. I did all the proper steps to level the frets three times and still lots of fret buzz. I have come to realize there are several high areas on some of the frets between 7 and 12. Upon further inspection, I can see that it looks like the frets have lifted up there. Could that be it? Thanks so much for taking time from me. All the best to you and your family. That's from Dean. Thanks, Dean. This is an amalgamation of a few emails that Dean sent me, and I edited out. I edited out about 80% of what he wrote because it just was too much for the show. But I think I got the essence of what Dean's asking here. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Dean, if this does not answer your question properly, you're welcome to email me. But, yeah, so if you've got frets that have lifted up, that's absolutely what's causing your problem. When you do a fret level, the frets need to be seated properly in the neck and uh you know they they can't have any play in them so if 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 frets have lifted and and they'll oftentimes they'll just lift on the on the ends if they've lifted up as you pass your file or whatever you're doing a fret level with if you have one of those beams with sandpaper on it or a long flat file as you pass over those frets they're just going to push down into the slot and then spring back up again once the file passes. 
and they're not going to get filed. Right. So you'll never, you'll never get a level fretboard. You'll never, you'll never get levelness from one fret to the next if some frets are loose. So uh, those frets need to either be taken out, retensioned, and put back in, or glued down. Like if you, if you push on the fret with your thumbnail, can you see it moving? And if so, then that's what's going on. That's what the problem is. And and that needs to be addressed before you do a fret level because no amount of fret leveling is going to fix that. Thanks, Dean. I've never seen those kits. I'm I'm not surprised that they're that they're not top notch, but I'm sure they're I, great. I'm sure they're great. Sponsor that's, us, yeah, Mac. Yeah, they're great. <clears throat> Dear Eric and Melissa, I have a question about guitar finishing. Can you talk about the process of grain filling slash pour filling? This is a step that is generally accepted that needs to be done when finishing guitars for a dead flat finish, but I have not been able to find much, much information about how to do it. Stumac sells powdered grain filler in bags and a 16-ounce tub of grain filler, but both of those options seem expensive to me. These can't be what pros use for their day-to-day usage, right? Also, the box stores sell grain filler, but I always considered those suitable for filling nail holes and not really filling grain in guitars. What do the pros use and what is the process to grain fill? On a side note, I feel like I hit a major milestone in my setup and repair business this week. I opened up a business banking account with my bank. Very nice. Uh, as soon as I bit the bullet and did this, I thought of a dozen problems that it solved. Solved. No more wads of cash sitting in my key bowl on my entryway. They weren't large wads of cash, but I had no place to put them. No more waiting for money to clear bef- my PayPal before I can buy something. No more clarifying with my wife which purchases our guitar purchases are for me and which are for the business, <laughs> etc. You have to do that? Uh, <laughs> An encouragement for your listeners, if you've been holding out on doing this like I was, it's not that hard and you don't need a business license as long as you put your full name as part of your business name. Uh, anyway, thanks for the really great podcast. That's from Adam. Thanks, Adam. That's that's cool. On the, uh, congratulations. Yeah, setting up a business. It might vary from state to state. He says um, you don't need a business license as long as you put your full name as part of your business name. I don't think that's the case in our state. Our bank required us to have we had to have a, a business a, license first. Well, we had to have a tax ID number. Oh yeah, tax ID number. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah anyhow, it, that may vary from state to state, but uh, definitely, if you know, the tax advantages of doing this too are are big. I mean, it's something that took me a long time to realize is. All the all the money you spend on parts and you know uh, tools and everything—that's all a write-off, and it's really hard to track if you're just using one bank account. So, yeah, good deal, Adam. Uh, on pour filler, there's typically there's typically two kinds that people use: there's oil-based and water-based. Uh, there's more than that. There's more to it than that, but the the trick is um, pore filler accentuates flaws, right? So you need to make sure that everything's sanded and, and flaw-free and looking good, okay? so And then I usually do a wash coat before I do pore filler because it seems like the pore filler sticks better 
uh, if you do a wash coat of either lacquer or a sanding sealer. So I seal the wood, and then I do pour filling. I have used just everything under the sun that you can think of. I've, I've used concentrated uh, uh, powdered stuff that you, that, you, that you dilute. I've used water-based. I've used oil-based. I've used uh, super glue. My friend, my that buddy Carson, like a mess. my buddy Carson Hess, buddy. I mean, I've never met him, but I I like the guy, and he he does great work. I, I just know him on Instagram. He told me he uses uh, super glue to do pore filling, and so I've tried that, and it absolutely it works really well. It's just such a toxic, awful deal. I mean, you have to wear goggles and a respirator because the fumes. Have you ever had super glue fumes? Get at your nose and eyes. Oh, yeah. I had my lashes done once, and they literally use super glue to glue lashes to yeah. your eyelashes. So sometimes mess. it'll hit you, and you're like, oh, man, it's yeah. awful. It's like a burn. Imagine an entire bottle of super glue flash curing under your face. The fumes are nothing to mess around with. I mean, you've got to wear, like you know, goggles that seal off your eyes completely. <laughs> not Because a lot of safety goggles have holes in the side. That, right. You need goggles that are for vapor protection, not just goggles that are protecting you from flying debris. And a full-on uh, respirator that you would use for, like, spraying lacquer. So it does work, but that's, it's, man, it's nasty. Uh, the oil-based stuff is also nasty, but not as bad as super glue. Um, I go back and forth between different things, but what I've settled on and what I use most of the time, and you're going to laugh, but it's it's the stuff from, from the hardware store. Elmer's, uh, I think it's called Elmer's Wood Filler. Let me look it up. It's water-based. Um... And you can thin it, so you can add a little bit of water to it. Yeah, Elmer's, it's called Carpenter's, let me look here, I'm looking it up. Carpenter's Wood Filler. Mm -hmm. That's what I use. It's water-based, uh, and um, after you, so you, you sand, then you you seal with a wash coat, then you use a pore filler, and this is what I use, this Elmer's Carpenter's Wood Filler. It's in, an, it's in a tub with an orange lid, a little square tub with an orange lid. And I just put, I mean, you just want to put a little bit on. When I first started doing this uh, a long time ago, I went way overboard with, with, the, uh, with grain filler. Just a tiny bit. All you, all you're trying to do is just fill the little tiny pores in the wood, right? And you're not icing a cake. And this is where a lot of guys go wrong. They put on way too much wood filler, and then they have to sand it back. And then in sanding it back, they knock all the pore filler out of the grain again, and you're just back to square one. So just a tiny bit. You can use a spreader, like a plastic scraper, to scrape, and you want to scrape across the grain, not with it, across the grain. And then I'll take 
uh, either a paper towel or a shop rag that's just slightly damp. And since this stuff is water-based, you can wipe across the grain and wipe off kind of the excess. And I've got it down now to where once I do the pore filler, I almost don't have to sand at all. Wow. I'll sand a little bit, but not much. But that used to be such a pain in the rear end. Pore fill and then sand and pore fill and sand and pore fill the imperfections and pore fill where you sanded too much and then pore fill and then sand. and Now, do it once, maybe twice, uh, but um, don't overdo it. You just a little bit. Just a little bit is all you need. Cool. And I will actually thin it just a tiny bit with water so so that it's a little bit more um, viscous. It has a little bit more viscosity mm-hmm. so it gets into the pores better. That, but that's what I use. And I know it's not a super pro thing. And you can certainly, you know, spend 50 bucks on a quart of really fancy, crazy grain filler. But in my experience, this stuff works just every bit as good. It's like $5 for a little 8-ounce tub. And if it dries out on you, which it's prone to do, you can add water and stir it up. Good as new. And yeah, just about good as new. So that's what I use. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Hi, Mel and Eric. Here I am back with another question. This time it's about vintage potentiometers. I recently scored a very nice 1959 Gibson ES-225T. It is such a cool guitar. It's almost all original, including the old electronics. The problem is both pots, but especially the tone pot, are really tough to turn. If I had these pots in front of me on my workbench, I'd know exactly how to loosen them, but I wonder if there is a good way of making them turn smoother and easier without getting the whole harness out of the guitar. Any advice would be much appreciated. Thanks so much for my favorite guitar podcast. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Cheers, Sebastian. Thanks, Sebastian. It's my buddy Sebastian there. My buddy Sebastian. Do you, you know Sebastian too? I made a strap for him. Oh, the Skeletor strap. Uh, I used remember? to I used to run into him in Seattle when we both lived over there. Uh, I think he moved back east. I believe we're assuming this is the same Sebastian. It's I'm how many sure Sebastians could I'm, listen to this show? I'm sure it's the same Sebastian. <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is an easy fix. Uh, what I would do on that guitar, <clears throat> if the pot's on a vintage pot that it's hard to turn, usually the culprit on those is the where the shaft is is in the collar <clears throat> and uh what I do is I just put one tiny tiny drop of oil where the shaft is coming out of the collar so you'll take the knob off right and then you've got the part that turns and it's coming out of the part that doesn't turn right mm-hmm. and you just put one little tiny drop there uh I I like Croil, K-R-O-I-L. It's a penetrating oil. Or you can use just a drop of sewing machine oil mm-hmm. uh, or something like that, you know. Just a tiny little drop and then work it back and forth and it, that frees potentiometers right up. That does a great job. So, um, yeah, so do that. Cool. Try that. You know, you ever listen to the truth about vintage amps? I have listened to one or two. That guy, Skip Simmons. 
he uh he was he was hesitant to share this for several episodes but finally finally divulged what he uses you know how i have you ever seen that deoxit spray that i spray inside pots uh-huh. sometimes do you know what he uses instead of deoxit what wd-40 oh yeah is that a no-no well it makes me laugh a little i <laughs> i'm i bow down to skip when it comes to amps the guy knows what he's talking about but i have not started spraying wd-40 in pots i'll tell you that much well if if it were me that's what i would reach for i'm just gonna come out there and say it in my very well, unprofessional opinion. One of the reasons he says that that's what he recommends is because when he tells somebody to use deoxit, then they automatically, in their mind, they just go, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to do that, so never mind. Yeah. But almost everybody has an old can of WD-40 in their garage. Yeah. But I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, that's uh, that's that just made me think of that. I don't know. I don't have a recommendation whether or not you should use WD-40 in your pots, but I I don't. This question came in just under just under the line. I just happened to check my email, but I had already printed out the questions. So, uh, but he made the deadline, so we're going to use it. It says, "Hey, Eric and Mel, thanks for the awesome strap and T-style pickups." This is from Jeff Metz. Oh, hi, Jeff. He, You're uh, so well. I Did he get he them already? A, yeah, well, apparently. He he got one of your Blackguard straps, and I sent him some pickups. Rad. They arrived in the mail this week and both look amazing. As usual, it was a good delivery day. Speaking of mail, my question is regarding the vintage mailbox letters that you see on a bunch of Blackguard tellies and some strats. I'm sure you've seen them. Little raised chrome blocks with black font on them, often used to decorate a guitar with the owner's initials. Have you come across these stickers ever? Ever do a pinup guitar with these stickers? Pretty cool vibe. Makes me wonder why various random early 50s vendors have these stickers. Thoughts? Thanks from Jeff. Yeah, you see that. You know, you see those. It's kind of like the... It's just kind of a thing people did. They liked to put their initials on their guitars. And I've seen all kinds of different things. You know, you get like the big trucker reflective chrome reflective like srv like stevie ravon right type letters that people pick up at truck stops i've seen uh water slide decals you know like at some point they must have sold a sheet of water slide decals with the alphabet and then you could make your name or something right and they'll put their initials on the pit guard or on the guitar or something uh or these little chrome like jeff's talking about these little chrome squares that have black font on them and uh, i guess people used to get them at the hardware store and put their name on their mailbox but it was just a thing people liked to put their name on there it just made it i think in, in a hillbilly way made them think that they had a custom guitar to put their initials or their name on it right it's something you see all the time on vintage guitars well it's like people with vanity plates yeah you see it on cases a lot too people have people put their initials or their name on their on, yeah. the, on the case. But yeah, something you see a lot. I've never tried to replicate that look just because uh, <laughs> how could you do, you know, yeah. like I don't want to put just some random initials on a guitar or my initials or a name or something. 
So I've never tried to do that, but it's a cool look, and it's always cool to see an authentic one like that where, uh, you know, the decal or the or the or the stickers are there. Um, it's just kind of a cool little historical thing. It's a little bit like, I mean, the whole reason why I do pinup decals on my guitars is because that's another thing you see on old fifties fenders is guys would put one of those little water slide pinup decals like on the back of the guitar and you know it was just a a way to personalize the guitar and I just thought that was cool you see that from time to time and it's just something that guys did very cool I love vintage guitars and all their little quirks oh yeah all the things guys did to them interesting stuff thanks for the uh, thanks for the email Jeff and thanks to everybody that participates in the show. We appreciate it. We didn't get any calls this time. If you want to call, you can call 757-774-8482. Leave a, uh, a voicemail there, or you can text that number. But the best way to do it is leave a voicemail there, 757-774-8482. Leave a voicemail, and we'll use that as part of the show. The other way to do it is to send me a message on ericdaw.com. Click the contact link. And uh, we'll use that as part of the show. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Good night.